summer uh, 1986, 30 years ago, I lived near Croydon. That's uh, so where I grew up, and I've uh, been into Croydon. I bought a couple of records, and I, well, the record that I, the album that I bought was a copy of uh, Fables of the Reconstruction by REM. Uh-huh. I was walking back to my house down our long, very leafy suburban road. It's a really hot day, and in the distance, no one around. In the distance, there's a man walking towards me, dressed in black leather. Oh, I was thinking, that's what an idiot out of this weather. And I get close. I thought, blimey, that bloke looks like Joe Strummer. <laughs> right in our road. And he gets me, it's Joe Strummer. I think, oh my God, I got Joe, it's Joe Strummer in the street. I can't just pretend. I'm, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And as he went past, I went, all right, Joe. And he went, all right, mate. That was, that. <laughs> that was it. I lost history was made. I don't, I don't know why he was there. Surely you, you didn't go, what are you doing? No, to I you? should have done. Now I would In suburban Croydon. Come and have a cup of tea with my mum. <laughs> no, I missed my chance. Man, that's a belter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Backlisted. Today we're gathered in the library of our sponsors Unbound, the publishers who bring authors and readers together to create great things to read. I'm John Mitchinson, runner-up of Corduroy Wearer of the Year 1987. Corduroy, king of cloths, cloth of kings. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Andy Miller, I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously and also, I don't normally say this but there's a reason for doing so, I'm also the author of the book in the 33 and a third series of books about albums, of a book about the kinks of the Village Green Preservation Society. What an and amazing there's re- coincidence. There's a reason why I mention that. Why is that? Guest John Niven. Well, yeah, I am Guest John Niven, author of novels like Kill Your Friends, and also a novel called uh, Music from Big Pink, which was my first novel in 2005, four or five, which was published in the same series as Andy's yeah, book. Yeah. Um, so we are label mates. <laughs> we are label mates, yeah. Yeah, I should say this is uh, our guest today, is John Niven, who is here to talk about the information by Martin Amis. John of course, known as a novelist. How many novels now? Six? Seven. Seven, seven, seven novels. Seven. The latest being The Sunshine Cruise Company. And we're also joined, as usual, by the author and fundraiser, uh, Matthew Clayton. Hello, Matthew. Hello, everyone. We'll be talking about Martin Amis, as I said later, but I have to start, as, as always, with the question of all questions. Andy, what haven't you been reading this week? <laughs> what haven't I been reading this week? Yeah. I've been reading a book of short stories by uh, the British writer Elizabeth Taylor, uh, but called The Devastating Boys. And I'm going to say a little bit about that, but I'm not going to say loads about it because I'm hoping we're going to do Elizabeth Taylor on a future episode of the podcast. But this is a book of short stories that was published, I think, in the 19, early 1970s. And uh, I've read one of uh, Elizabeth Taylor's novels before, Angel. I just thought this was the most brilliant collection of short stories that I've read since Tigers Are Better Looking by Jean... Reese. There's a story in there called, an amazing story called In and Out of the Houses, which is about ten pages long, where a little girl, during her school holidays, goes from house to house in her village inadvertently carrying the most terrible gossip between each house. And <laughs> like in the sort co- of virus. Yeah, yeah, in the course of the summer. And in the course of the summer, the village falls apart and turns in on itself. Oh, it's so beautiful. What a great done. idea. And there's a really horrible story called The Flypaper, which is like something from Tales of the Unexpected. And there's another and there's an amazing story called The Excursion to the Source. It's al- almost a novella. And it's a perfect collection of short stories because it has that thing Every story is different, and yet each has a clear voice. They're all clearly written by the same author. And I've also just been reading, and in comparison of the devastating boys. 
Oh, right. What a band name that was. <laughs> but I've also been reading. I've also been reading a, um, a volume of John Cheever's short stories called *The Brigadier and the Golf Widow*, and I, I like wow. the Elizabeth Taylor more. I mean, the Cheever stories That's are obviously like, brilliant. Clear. Mm, yeah. clear, yeah. The thing with Cheever is, it strikes me you have to buy into the voice. They are all yeah. written in a particular register, yeah. right? And as a result. Some are better than others, and some are quite samey. Tortured gay wasp register. <laughs> so it's fine. Yeah. You know, plenty of bourbon and surnames. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but the Elizabeth great. Taylor just well, That's seemed... a great memoir title, Bourbon yeah, and Surnames. surnames. <laughs> don't, don't you think, though, that short stories are a bit like sherry? Every few years, people suggest that they're about to become really popular again. What, reinvent And, and they're not, you know, because yeah, they're not that good. Agree. I, I don't really like short I stories. I suggested a collection of short stories once to my publisher, <laughs> and the reaction... I mean, yeah. you'd have think I'd lay the log on the table. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've also noticed... I, I did actually. Yeah. I wrote so, a few do you have a publisher for your, <laughs> your short fiction? He said, "Short I've fiction." All, I've spoken like a publisher. <laughs> Never call them short stories. Short <laughs> fiction. Maybe we should talk. Funny you should mention that. I think short story is a sort of. It, it, we ought to have a better word for what they are because, I mean, mm. it, nobody says I've just published a long story. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like story is story is the kind <laughs> yeah. of story is the is the stuff. But I also, yeah. what I noticed, I noticed with um, short stories, right? This is a thing that we do here on this podcast that we should try not to do. So if you say you're reading a novel by somebody and it's the first novel that you've read of theirs, like I was reading Angel by Elizabeth Taylor, and while I was reading, it, I tweeted, I said, "I'm really enjoying this book." Someone will inevitably say to you, "You really should read the short stories." <laughs> right? Okay. Right. Okay. Right. They do that. So that, though I was reading the short stories, and while I was in the short stories, I was saying, "Oh, these man, these short stories are great." You Somebody really tweeted me you saying, should, "You should you read really the novels. Should read the letters." Right? So oh, you get yeah, to yeah. the letters, yeah. you get the letters, yeah. and you go, "We did this with Nancy Milford, oh, right?" Yeah, saying, oh, you read the letters. But have you read the journals? Oh. <laughs> you know, like, it's like a endless is, series of a Russian very, dolls. This is a very right? Amisian kind of uh, thing, isn't it? <laughs> no, you know, no, like no. that great thing in, in, in the information where he's talking yeah. about all the different streets, you know, how they kind of go down until you get to close. And <laughs> yeah, that's it's... right. <laughs> but nobody ever goes... But like, what, if I'd read Angel, no-one ever would have the strength of character to say, you oh, you're reading Angel. You've, you've done it. That's it. <laughs> that's that's her best read. book and the essence this, of her work. This right? is all you need to read. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, John, John, what have you been reading? I've been reading... I've, I feel it's a bit of a cheat because it's so much fun. It's a book called Daily Rituals by Mason Curry, who's a, a young American writer. But he's just done that, a really, really simple thing, but totally delicious. How great minds make time, find inspiration and get to work. Every literary festival you've ever been to, this is all anyone wants to know. So, you know, it's either, do you write with a typewriter or, or a word processor or a pen? But also, describe your working day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of yeah. course, it is endlessly fascinating. And this book is just, and it's not just writers, it's painters, it's musicians, it's everybody. Wow. I mean, there are some in here. I thought I might just read one because we're going to do one of the forthcoming podcasts, Henry Green, the novelist. But this has got to be the best working routine <laughs> I have ever heard, bar none. He was managing director of a company called Pontifex. <laughs> okay. And it says, that it says, Green's reliance on the stability of a day job was no doubt helped by the fact that his actual duties were practically zero. <laughs> According to his biographer, Jeremy Tregrown, a typical day in the life of Henry York, managing director of Pontifex, looked something like this. He arrived at work at about 10am, was brought his gin, and spent an hour or two pottering around his office or gossiping with the secretaries. At <laughs> 11.30, he left to spend the middle part of the working day at a nearby pub, refreshing himself with a couple of pints of beer before returning to gin. 
a colleague or two would eventually join him there and then they would talk about people at work or the bar regulars <laughs> whose conversation Green would have been eavesdropping on while he was alone. When the managing director finally returned to his office, he repeated his morning routine and then maybe wrote a page or two of his novel before catching the bus <laughs> Our mutual friend Tom Hodgkinson once went to interview Bruce, Bruce Robinson. He was trying to fix up a date for him and he rang up Bruce and said, how about next Tuesday? And Bruce said, I'll look in my diary. Sorry, Tom, I've had a look, and it says, uh, Tuesday afternoon, bottle of red wine and a wank. <laughs> that, 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 we were talking about J.G. Ballard last time, weren't we? Ballard's routine was, because as you, as you know, Ballard brought up the children on his own. On his own, yeah. So he would get the children ready for school, he would run them to the school, he'd come back, he'd pour himself an enormous whiskey, he'd drink the whiskey for 20 minutes, and then he'd write. I really understand didn't, didn't, that as to draw a line. Do a similar thing. With, uh, <laughs> then, but, I think <laughs> ba- ba- Ballard had a, a huge scotch on the hour, every hour. That was Did his he? And uh, he was actually asked in an interview when he said, he finally, he said it got to the point he thought, I'm, I'm not going to start drinking till six o'clock. That, and the interviewer asked him, well, was it hard putting that off? And he said, hard? It was like Stalingrad. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to not drink till 6pm yeah, yeah. after being used to hitting the bottle. So. What's, uh, what's your routine, John? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, it doesn't involve any reliance on booze like that. It's really boring. I, I, I can only really write fiction in the morning, and the earlier the better. You know, if I can get the desk at 6.30, 7am, that's fantastic. But more usually it's like 8.39 and then done by lunchtime, really. Yeah, but yeah. We'll get, I've got so much stuff on the screen right just now that my partner Nick comes out in the afternoons and we work on whatever script we're working on in the afternoon and then into the day deal with the emails and whatnot. But really sort of 9 till 1 is kind of I find, novel. I, right. I like, I'm, I'm exactly the same. The it's earlier I can get to the work. desk, yeah. mm. the happier I am so that I can be yeah. done by lunchtime. You know? If you feel you somehow get a thousand words before breakfast you've kind of mugged the day everything yeah. after that yeah, is yeah. gravy I mean, I mean I used to be able to do the long through the night stuff I just fall asleep now and end up in a <laughs> no, saliva I, on the desk I also think that's some you know it's very some stu- bullshit isn't it that, that <laughs> kind of look that's that always feels to me like look at me Fag hanging yeah. out the mouth, well, I th- tapping on the typewriter. I think it can work when, when you're young, but Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver famously, yeah. said he would sit up all night and out his mind and coke and whiskey. Cocaine, that is, not cocoa. <laughs> and uh, he'd write till five in the morning till he collapsed, and he said then he would revise sober the next day. And he said out of the 12 or 14 pages he'd written, he might get two that, yeah. were, that were good. But he said that, that sort of regime only works for a young man, somebody in their 20s, because as you get into your 40s, say, you really have to have an incredible amount of stamina to want to live that lifestyle of yeah. you know, abuse. You know? Yeah. So this book... Routines? Is it yeah, daily, daily rituals? Yeah. Sorry, is it interviews or is it? No, no. He literally, it's just gets a cut and paste job. But it's just getting a lot, a lot of these stories. Some of which are unintentionally, like that one, hilarious. Mm-hmm. Some of which are actually quite useful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does. Honestly, having read it, the thing is, getting up early does seem to be the, <laughs> the consistent. <laughs> I mean, there's a great one where Agatha Christie says, uh, everybody says, when do you, when do you ever write? And she's great. She just said, well, I don't really know. I sort of. I, I write in different rooms, but I, if I'm doing something, I just go like a dog with a bone and just disappear off and gnaw at it until I'm finished. And there's a great, obviously, Kingsley Amos, you know, which is punctuated <laughs> again by whiskey. But I thought maybe I should say, do you want to hear what Martin Amos's daily routine is? Oh, oh, oh yes. Yeah, yeah, OK. 
I've really got to resist doing my Amos impersonation, <laughs> yeah. just in case. But, yeah. we, should, we should all... And he basically said that he doesn't have any squeamishness about writing, he told the Paris Review. Amos says he writes every weekday, driving himself to an office less than a mile from his London apartment. He keeps business Careful. hours, but generally writes only for a small portion of the time. Everyone assumes I'm a systematic, nose-to-the-grindstone kind of person, he said, but to me it seems like a part-time job, really, in that writing from 11 to 1 continuously is a very good day's work. 11 to 1, OK? <laughs> 11 to 12, 1, that's two oh, hours, two right? hours yeah. Then you can read or play tennis or snooker, all very <laughs> germane to what we're discussing yeah, next. Yeah. Two hours. I think most writers would be very happy with two hours of concentrated work. But it's not wrong. No. I mean, I'll often set... The longest stretch I'll set writing fiction for will be four or five hours... But, you know, of those four or five, it's probably really two is the, where it all happens, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Who's that book by? It's, it's uh, Mason Curry. It's published by Picador in the UK. Oh, but it's kind of, it's, it's fun. It's really good fun. And actually, some of the painters are almost more interesting than the yeah. than the writers. I, I found it most most diverting, and I'm sure we'll, it'll, it'll reappear uh, in future podcasts. Now it's commercials. <laughs> <laughs> so the novel that our guest, John Niven, was keen that we, I think in all cases, revisit. Uh, Have yeah. we all read it before? Yeah. Yeah. Was The Information by Martin Amis. John, can you say a bit about why? I know you're a big Amis fan. Yeah, yeah. Well, as, is, as is known, I'm a huge fan. Uh, th- this book, it's the last part of what's kind of viewed as his West London trilogy, if you will, with money in 1984, then London Fields in 1989, and this was published, the information, in 1995. So, and to my mind, as the years go by, it's actually the best book of the three. Well, I think money and London Fields get enormous plaudits, and rightly so. Um, I think it's partly that it was an awful bomb and quite, you know, as, as is well known, difficult circumstances, he mm-hmm. got a huge advance to, at the time, I think you'd remember better than I, do half a million? Half a million, yeah. Half a million for two. It's half a million for two. 20 yeah. years ago, and he famously had dental problems and he got his teeth fixed and it was a long gestation he process. His he left his and his, uh, his wife of course, and it was a very tumultuous period in his life. And I, I, bought, I read the novel when it came out because I was already a fan, but I guess I was only about 25, 26 myself yeah. then. And uh, I loved it, I thought it was very funny but you know books are like that they're not they're not inert things they change for you over the years like wine as you yeah, yeah, yeah. age your relationship to them completely changes and to read it now in middle age in my late 40s is a completely <laughs> yeah. different experience well, we were saying earlier weren't we i was saying I, I read this when it came out when i was like 27 Mm. Reading it in 2016, I've got 20 years more experience of both the book industry and myself. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <So laughs> both of which have made me feel a bit bleaker about it. Is, it, so. it is harsh, isn't it? It is so harsh. As we know, it's a, it's a it's an awful really bit literary envy. Well, actually, literary I'm going to stop you there. We have a tradition on Backlisted of reading out oh, the, you blurb do the blurb just to try and... Say, just, just to try and... Yeah, exactly. Always a fan of something. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. We would, now normally we would also spend a bit of time giving you a potted biography of Martin Amis, but I, I don't believe anyone listening to this does. <laughs> it's the very old joke. On, on Martin Amis, my struggle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe my mum might be sort of. Who is this fellow? So okay, this is the this is the original first edition flap copy mm-hmm. from the original first edition of ninety five. Uh, Controversially published by HarperCollins, he had been Jonathan Cape author, author. Mm-hmm. previously for all his books, and this was the was the story. He moved agents, went to Andrew Wiley, and then Wiley did. The auction, Cape lost. He went to 
to HarperCollins. And so here's the book which they launched as a bestseller. This is the description they gave to the public. Here we go. There aren't many ways for one writer to hurt another. Even if the literary world were as hopelessly corrupt as some people like to think it is, <coughs> a writer cannot seriously damage a rival. This is the unwelcome conclusion reached by Richard Tull, failed novelist, when he contemplates the agonising success of his best friend and worst enemy, Gwyn Barry. A scathing review, a scurrilous profile, such things might hurt Gwyn Barry, but they wouldn't hurt him. So Richard Tull is obliged to look elsewhere, to the weapons of the outside world. Seductions and succubi, hoaxes, mind games, frame-ups, sabotage, until at last Richard finds what he's looking for. A true professional, someone who hurts people in exchange for cash. <laughs> That's actually quite good, It's a isn't it? very good blurb, I think. <laughs> it's quite good, but it, does, it goes a bit... I mean, straight after, there's a kind of final paragraph where yeah. it, says, um, it says, in the information, Martin Amos returns to the big picture of money in London and I think within that one sentence, you can sense the publisher's fear that it's not going to yeah, sell. I agree. Not, I just I think agree. that one sentence within that, you can read between the lines, like, incredible fear. There's also this really peculiar sentence following that that says, the book takes in the whole of society with the possible exception of the middle yeah, classes. Right. <laughs> like, so all yeah. of society is part from one third. That's <laughs> yeah, a very odd sentence. It is an odd sentence. It's something he was said himself, didn't he, that his father's fiction dealt almost exclusively with the middle classes, whereas his tended to deal with people from the gutter or the upper classes. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. The kind of two worlds he, he inhabits. But I don't, you know, the blurb doesn't... It's such a fabulously funny novel. You know, um, Richard's... As he says that, he's a failed novelist. He's, um, I love the sentence where, he, you know, he, he works as a sort of book reviewer. He's forever lugging some thousand-page <laughs> yeah, Robert Southey gentleman. They're all late 18th century, sort of Thomas, yeah. the, the works of Thomas Tusset, really mostly forgotten kind yeah, of, of mediocre writers. Unlamented 19th century. <laughs> and it's always some thousand-page tome that he has to review for 30 quid. And, you know, his wife still calculates the following two book reviews a, a month uh, short. A of, paragraph for a brilliant line about a paragraph review of a thousand page novel which had to be in by four o'clock yeah. <laughs> and he works for a vanity publisher yeah Tantalus, Tantalus Press. and he's also the literary editor of something called the Little, little Review it's when he's in America that's the line isn't it the Americans would have no idea of just how little the Little Review magazine was. finally we should say that Richard Tull is the author of <laughs> six novels, yeah. only three of them published. Yeah. The first one is called A Forethought. Yeah. <laughs> the second one is one called yeah. Dreams Don't Mean Anything. Anything. Yeah. And the sixth one well, <laughs> is called Untitled. Well, <laughs> he also goes through saying uh, he knows his feelings in all this. And he says, after Untitled, he knows there are prospective novels stacked in his world called Unfinished, <laughs> Unattempted, <laughs> and Unimagined. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cruel on Richard's, you know, uh, hope to ambition. The thing is, Richard is just a spectacularly awful character. I mean, he's sort of, he's just so... I'm kind of sympathetic uh, to but Richard. You can't, that's the genius of Amos, is he makes you sympathetic for this man who is plotting yes. violence, serious violence but, against his, his well, best friend. But he has no redeeming features. He hits, he hits his small child. Uh, uh, that, but provoked by Gwen Barry, I think you'll find. But, well, Going number you, nine in the bestseller list, because that's the thing. Yeah, that's what triggers because Gwyn Barry is a, is a pathetic, fat Welsh wimp. Gwyn was his university friend, who and, and who, he, who he'd always years. lauded it over, and who 
was always and had a what she called the girlfriend Gilda, the girlfriend mm. who, who I love this. There was so many great details. How he used to steal buns for her when he smuggled into her room at college, and she and she yeah. liked marmalade. And that, that's what she got. <laughs> what happens is he becomes a, a hugely, hugely gigantically successful in a kind of Paolo of... Cello kind of you know alchemist kind of way. The books yeah. are the book. What's the first Trick. one called? Summertime, which yeah. is. A, Do you it, know what I was thinking about this when we, when I was on the way up here? I was thinking. I can think of oh, yeah. contemporary I, I examples, think, but I'm not sure I want to say them. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh. You raise what Richard described as tricks. Oh, it's yeah, just yeah, pure yeah. tricks. Pure and tricks. it comes up, and I'd like, that's one of the things that comes up, pure tricks, which for listeners who are of a certain generation, tricks was commercially through 60s and 70s was large. It's large, yeah. yeah. So you don't you don't think you can buy tracks anymore. To me, it's always it's an amalgam of yeah. text and drake. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. this a worthless kind yeah. of garbage. It's a great that, kind word. Of, that means nothing. But by some fluke of publishing and public taste, it's enormous. So Gwen's had this colossal success and um, lives, colossal, in gi- yeah. lives in a gigantic yeah. house in sort of a, servants. in Notting Hill, whereas oh. Rich is in a tiny apartment with a wife and two kids and his failing at everything he does and his hatred for Gwen just <laughs> Richard had to see whether the experience of disappointment was going to make him bitter or better and it made him bitter <laughs> he was sorry there was nothing he could do about it he wasn't up to better Richard continued to review books he was very good at book reviewing and when he reviewed a book it's it's stayed it's reviewed. It's otherwise he was an ex-novelist or not ex so much as void or Phantom, the literary editor of the Little magazine and a special director of the Tantalus Press. <laughs> now, I have to say, in 1995, I found that terribly amusing. Yeah. I find it funny now for a slightly different reason. You know? <laughs> yeah, life. Um, <laughs> it's a way of catching people up, doesn't it? The thing with Gwen is, I love the way it starts off, as you sort of mentioned in the intro, the, the, the torments he tries to inflict on Gwen are initially quite petty, aren't they? For instance, he sends him a copy of the entire weekend edition of the Los Angeles Times, oh, yeah. which is like, has got a suitcase-sized piece of newsprint <laughs> with a little post-it on it saying, something to interest you here. On, but no, from John, with the, from an anonymous... With, 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 with no page reference, knowing that Gwen's ego is so ravioled, spend the entire weekend combing every single page. Which you know? he does. But you know, but however, Richard suddenly suspects what if there is a reference to it. <laughs> so Richard ends up going through the entire thing himself, cutting his fingers to pieces and having to then repackage it all pristinely. <laughs> and then Gwen of course finds the reference to himself, which there is one in there that Richard's missed. So he has to then go back again <laughs> and try and <laughs> no, no, Gwen's, he goes to Gwen's house that's lying well, that's on the side he and, he say, and he says, Oh you read in the LED. He goes, yeah, a reference to me in it. But it's a, a copy of his first novel for sale, second-hand copy for sale. It's pretty that's right, that's right. It's in the small ads, that's great. That is, that's right. We should also add that Richard Tull is also, in theory, working on a non-fiction book called The History of Increasing Humiliation, <laughs> <laughs> which becomes a running gag as well. And, and of course, his own, Richard's current novel, Dreams Don't Mean Anything, that he's trying to promote, is a book It's so crazily postmodern and terrible and difficultly... St- Impossible narrative actually inflicts illness. On but everybody who reads it, untitled, sort of. Uh, nobody, titled, excuse me. Nobody can, nobody can get through. But it's at page nine. Yeah, the agent. Yeah, kind of, blinding 
Green <laughs> disease. Or... Another, one, <laughs> another one comes down with some terrible disease. <laughs> and he's, he realises at one point all he really needed to do was to get Gwyn Barry to read his own novel. <laughs> and it, he'd have given him a brain tumour and that would have been it. But I well, mean, the comedy, the comedy in Amos is, so, is jet black. Well, there, there, there's a brilliant line here, the comedy line. There's a line where they play tennis a lot. Mm. Right, Richard and Gwyn. And Snooker. And Snooker, right. At the Warlock. At the Warlock. <laughs> Said Richard pensively, well, we know one thing. What's that? You're not going to get a profundity requital. The profundity requital is an enormous <laughs> yeah, American at, at, at stipend, right? Yeah. Half of the book. Gwyn, who was wrong, <laughs> flexed his forehead and said, a million people can't be wrong. Richard, who was also wrong, said a million people are always wrong. Let's play. <laughs> so, and that's condensed into just a couple of lines in the middle of this chapter. He's very good. I mean, there's three or four comic set pieces in the novel that I just yeah. that stay with me always. Um, I wanted to read a tiny bit, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, comes quite early in the book when Richard is taken to a lunch at which there are various publishing luminaries, and he's under the impression that Gwen's doing him a favour that he's been considered for the editorship <laughs> of a new magazine and this is very funny but it also makes a fantastic point about literature that I'm an enormous fan of so that they're lunching in some sort of swank Mayfair restaurant the financier spoke about the kind of literary magazine he would like to be associated with the kind of magazine he was prepared to be the financier of not so much like magazine A not so much like magazine B more like <laughs> magazine C defunct or magazine D published in New York <laughs> Gwen Barry was then asked about the kind of magazine he would like to be associated with the kind of magazine that had high standards Ditto the captain of industry, the shadow minister for arts, the female columnist and the male columnist. Rory Pantagenet, the reporter, was not consulted. Neither was the photographer, who was leaving anyway. Neither, depressingly, was Richard Tull, who was struggling to remain under the impression that he was being groomed for the editorship. <laughs> the only questions that came his way were about technical matters, print runs, break-even junctures and the like. Would there be any point, the financier Sebi was saying, in doing any market research stuff? Richard said, what, reader profile stuff? He had no idea what to say. Age and sex, things like that. And I thought we might press a questionnaire on, say, students reading English at London, something of that kind, to see if they like high standards, Richard said. <laughs> <laughs> Targeting, said the male columnist, who was about 28 and experimentally bearded, with a, <laughs> with a school dinner look about him. <laughs> The column, the male columnist wrote, was sociopolitical. Come on, Richard said, this isn't America, where the magazine market is completely balkanised, where, you know, they have magazines for the twice-divorced South Moroccan scuba diver. <laughs> Still, there are more predictable preferences, said the publisher. Women's magazines are read by women and men. There was a silence. To fill it, Richard said, has anyone ever really established whether men prefer to read men and whether women prefer to read women? Oh, please, what is this, said the female columnist. We're not talking about motorbikes and knitting patterns. We're talking about literature, for God's sake. <laughs> Richard said, is this without interest? Nabokov said he was frankly homosexual in his literary taste. <laughs> I don't think men and women read or write in exactly the same way. They go at it differently. And I suppose, the woman said, that there are racial differences too. Richard didn't answer. For a moment, he looked worryingly short-necked. <laughs> he was, in fact, coping with the digestive matter. Or, or at least he was sitting tight until the digestive matter resolved itself one way or the other. I can't believe I'm hearing this, the woman said. I thought we came here today to talk about art. What's the matter with you? Are you drunk? Richard turned his senses on her. 
The woman, gruff, sizable, stilely handsome, and always barging through to her share of the truth. Oh. Richard knew the type because literature knew the type. Like the smug boiler in the Pritchett story, the Labour politician up north, proud of her brusqueness and her good big bum. The column the female columnist wrote wasn't specifically about being a woman, but the photograph above it somehow needed to have long hair and makeup for it all to hang together. <laughs> The shadow minister for the arts said, isn't this what literature's meant to be about, transcending human difference? Here, here, said the female columnist. Me, I don't give a damn whether people are male, female, black, white, pink, puce or polka-dotted. And that's why you're no good, Richard said. <laughs> Steady there, said Sebi, the financier. Then he added, as if the very appellation refreshed him, Gwen. Everyone turned to him in silence. Gwen was staring at his coffee spoon with a fascinated frown. This is something Gwen, Gwen started doing to Richard's insane irritation. It's looking at an orange or a spoon as if, it's, as if he's seeing it for the first time. He thinks it's a novelistic thing to do. Gwen replaced the spoon in its saucer and looked up, his face clearing, his green eyes brightening. Gwen said very slowly, I find I never think in terms of men, in terms of women. I always think in terms of people. There was an immediate burble of approbation. Gwen, it seemed, had douched the entire company in common sense and plain humanity. Richard had to raise his voice, which meant that his cough kicked in, but he went ahead with his passionate speech. It was that little rapt pause before the word people. That was what did it. <laughs> a very low-level remark, if I may say so. Hey, Gwen, you know what you remind me of? A quiz in a colour magazine, you know. Are you cut out to be a teacher? Would you rather teach A, history, B, geography, or C, children? Well, you don't get a choice about teaching children, but there is a choice and a difference between history and geography. It must make you feel nice and young to say that being a man means nothing and being a woman means nothing and what matters is being a person. How about being a spider, Gwen? Let's imagine you're a spider. You're a spider and you've just had your first serious date and you're limping away from that now. You're looking over your shoulder and there's your girlfriend eating one of your legs like it was a chicken drumstick. What would you say, I know, you'd say, I find I never think in terms of male spiders or in terms of female spiders. I always think in terms of spiders. Oh, oh Come on, you have to say, us a genius. On form, I mean, there is probably no, I don't think there is a better comic writer in, in English so on that, form. That's a very Amos thing to do in one of his books as well, is to set up these opposing mm. figures, right? Like, and in this book, it's Richard Tull and Gwyn Barry. And I was thinking about this, and I think the brilliance of this, reading it again, is that it's not really a battle between an unsuccessful author and a successful one, mm. you know, although it is that. Mm. But it's that most authors think of themselves as Richard Tull and yeah, yeah, all yeah. other authors as Gwyn Barry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. There's probably a bit of that, it's very true. I think what's getting attacked there really, though, is the notion of PC, this idea of, you know, we're all the same and everybody's, you know, mm, yeah. and that doesn't really fly in literature because literature is about examining, exploring difference. This is what kind of Richard's rightly saying. And the idea of, I think Amy said in the interview at the time, the very admirable notion of political correctness is to press a sort of accelerator pedal and have us in a, in a future where there's no racism and no sexism and no misogyny and all these things are in the past. However, it takes generations to get there and the idea to get, that you can suddenly 
hit a button mm. by outlawing certain language. I mean, later on, Richard refers to women as reeking of spinst. Spinst. You can't say things like that. And he says, why can't I say things like yeah. that? And Gwen says, because people will start avoiding <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Richard's kind of filter is certainly off a lot of the, the I mean, time. I loved coming back, reading it, and found it very painful, very funny. But I also found that there were bits of it that, you know, I think the Steve Cousins subplot much less good than I remember it, maybe just because, uh, you know... Well, he'd done it as well. I I felt I remember thinking that at the time and looking at it again now. Amos has played that character... Sort of Keith Talent. ...in novels several times, right? Yeah. Yeah, um... It doesn't doesn't dent the book for me, but I know what you're saying. No, no, uh, You feel it's the kind of character that um, uh, Keith Talent plays in in, in London Fields, sort of, you know? Because the Richard, Gwen, and the and the wives, because those, I mean, you don't. It's so. It's, it's. I mean, it. It's a big book. It's a five hundred yeah, page right, novel, it's, but it, it, you. I mean, and it's you know, it's written in Amos's. I think it's his longest novel. Yeah, actually. I mean, I'm I'm in, interested that you think of the three. It's, I not having read Money for a long time and not having read London Fields for even longer. I have to say, I enjoyed this way more than I was. I I'd always thought it was the least good of the three, and I think mm. you might be right now. I think. With, with, that, the, with the benefit of hindsight well, and a I, bit of life under I one's just, belt. When, when uh, we knew that John was going to come, that he, he was to come and talk about the information and we were going to be reading the information, I was thinking, oh, I haven't read an Amos recently. And I realised I hadn't actually read a, an Amos since Night Train in 97. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I mean, age... I mean, I, am I a love police. Amos. Mm. You know, but I, I... So I've read, like, a two or three in the last month just to, to catch up, uh, really... I read um, Experience, the memoir, and Cobra the Dread, and the mm. last, the last novel, The Zone of Interest. Mm. They're all terrific. I yeah. all three of them were terrific. No, and the thing that struck me about Amos, Amos takes a lot of flack. Mm. We know that, right? Mm. You know, some of it may be justified, some of it maybe not. But in in the case of all those books, you know, Cobra the Dread was as a book problematic in some ways experience, terrific memoir and yet wanders away from the point quite a lot. Zone of interest, is it is it should it be should he be writing novel another novel about the Holocaust, is it mm. appropriate? None of them take into account the thing that's really clear in the information as well, which is when it comes to writing brilliant sentences. Mm. I mean I can't think of another mm. Contemporary British well, writer who has quite the same facility with words and language and likes making yeah. hard sounds yeah. out of words. You know the bit that you were just reading, John. Exactly that. You know, yeah. if you're if you're if you're remotely interested in 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 narrative, you know how I mean the way he puts himself into the text. I mean he's he is. You do you do feel you are in the hands of somebody who can who can sort of do it. He can do comedy. He can do you know he he can do yeah. d- diversion into science. He can do. I mean he's he's just he is technically I mean a pretty spectacular writer. It's I guess the thing that people complain about with Amos is that whether you give a shit about any of the characters because well, he just he writes a and, and also yeah. whether he can do working class as well, isn't it? I mean Lionel Asbo is a I, I love his books, but Lionel Asbo is a terrible book. I thought there were a couple of bits in that that made me bark with laughter. I think. Oh, there was always going to be Lionel's funny things. explanation of 9-11 really... is just phrases. Yeah, but I, I couldn't I, read it. I think what he does is, um, as a prose stylist, I don't think he has an equal in his generation. And for the, he, he believes with Nabokov, doesn't he, that style is art, style yeah. is morality. Is morality. So, yeah, so, so, so to a degree, I don't really care what he's writing about. I, don't I, and I, 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 I buy that. I mean, I, I think so that... There's this brilliant quote from him 
You know, uh, when Yellow Dog came out, Yellow Dog, 2003, Yellow Dog got savage. Terrible reviews, right? Although it's one of only two of his books that have ever been long-listed for the book Book prize. (laughs) That and Time's Arrow. Yeah. That and Time's Arrow. But he got this brilliant quote, this brilliant... uh, uh, In response to why he had received such a drubbing for Yellow Dog, he said, quote... No one wants to read a difficult literary novel or deal with a prose style which reminds them how thick they are. <laughs> there's a go, there's Marty. A, there's a yeah. There's a when 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 faced with the fire, do I reach for the bucket of water or the or the can of petrol? Um, there's a push towards egalitarianism making writing more chummy and interactive instead of a higher voice. And that's what I go to literature for. Right, and in terms, even in Lionel Asbo, you know, it might misfire. He's still trying to find a way of representing that stuff on a higher, you know, linguistic way. I I just think of him in terms of... I I mean, I don't mind Lionel Asbo. I prefer Lionel Asbo to any novel by Julian Barnes or Ian McEwan. Well, that's his, that's his, that's his, that's his real sin. No, so I think it's when I think of Martin Amis, I think of those other two novelists. I think of them Matthew, being part of a Ma- generation. Matthew Clayton's views do not represent <laughs> everyone around the table. And I, and I just would, you know, I'd far prefer that he be writing something like Lionel Asbo than another Ian McEwan novel appeared. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, they're all, I think they're interesting here about Amis is they're all, I think all three of those guys are pretty good writers of yeah, English. I, I have to say I love and I, Barnes. And I think Barnes is, is, a, is an amazing, as is actually Martin, brilliant essayist. Yeah. But there is something, there is just something about Amos. I mean, I, I, that's a fantastic quote, Andy, by the way. I must, mm. I must scribble that down. Mm. But, but I mean, I just love the, the smallest, it's that thing you feel, there's a, there's a brilliant quote in here where he says, He's writing about Richard's Untitled, which all feels a little bit autobiographical. You know, he's saying he was trying to write genius novels like Joyce. Joyce was the best yet at genius novels, which is great. <laughs> and he, he was a drag about half the time. Yeah. Richard arguably was a drag all the time. If you had to settle on a one-word description of his stuff, then you would almost certainly make do with unreadable. <laughs> <laughs> Untitled, for now, remained unread, but no-one had ever willingly finished its predecessors. Richard was too proud and too lazy, in a way, too clever and too nuts to write talent novels. For instance, the thought of getting a character out of the house and across town to somewhere else <laughs> made him go vague with exhaustion. <laughs> and I sometimes feel this about Amos. It's like, oh, my God, it must be so exhausting. You know, every... Paragraph. Every, every every bit of everything that's happening, that, that it's just he kind of. But don't you think, John, as well that that like the. You know what his dad said famously, of course. He said, you know, the thing about Martin's novels, they they don't have enough sentences. Like they finished their drinks and left. <laughs> you know, Kingsley's complaint about money. Yeah, it, when Martin and himself appeals in it, he sent the book flying across the room, <laughs> breaking the rules, buggering about, about with the, the reader, reader drawing for... attention to himself. <laughs> Don't you think, John, that this very... I mean, this is the thing, this is one of the things that I think people who don't like Amos either don't like about him or don't guess about him. You know, a lot of that stuff about Richard's awful books and the midlife pain Mm. that's in this book as well. Mm -hmm. It seems really autobiographical to me. Mm -hmm, How can you not read it and see that that's coming from... I think he was was uniquely placed to write this, wasn't because he's neither Richard Tull nor Gwen Barry. He's not Mm -hmm. a billion-selling sort of punter of tricks, and he's not a failure. He's, you know, you could could see how he could completely delineate each character brilliantly. He inhabits both the worlds brilliantly. And the point, so just to finish off on that point we were making there about what he thinks the novel is and what art 
what literature does. Um, I think it's brilliantly said by Richard in an interview, in a radio interview later in the book, um, the radio interview was asking, what's your book about? You know, what's it saying? What, no, sorry, he asked, what's your book trying to say? Yeah. He says, it's not trying, trying to, say to say anything. anything. <laughs> it's saying it. It's saying itself for 400 pages. <laughs> I, couldn't yeah, put, yeah. I couldn't put it any other yeah, way. Yeah. He's not coming to tell you some message or some big story to tell. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's style. It's, it's saying it's, yeah, you know, yeah, In Richard's yeah. case, appalling, unreadable style. <laughs> Matthew, uh, do, is there, <laughs> we've, we've, we've been incredibly relevant so far. Yeah. Is there something you you could pull us away from relevance with? Perhaps. Yeah, well, the, actually, it's quite difficult to do a tenuous link for for Amos, as you've already suggested. Everyone knows every single thing about his life. <laughs> yeah, you know, I know true, more true. about Martin Amos than any other novelist, probably. Mm. So, but there's one thing you might not know, which is, and it's kind of pertinent to what we've been discussing. Which is, do you know? And I'm going to ask you, Andy. Do you know uh, what novelist has a character, a reoccurring character, in fact, called Amos Smallbone? Aim a small penis, in other words. Ooh, is it A.S. Byatt? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish it was. I wish it was. It, it's not. It's Peter James. You know, Peter James. Oh, Peter crime James. James. Oh, my God, yeah. So, Peter James, a crime novelist. And he Brighton's wrote, yeah, Peter Brighton's James. Peter James. Amos he, Smallbone. Amos Smallbone is a reoccurring gangster with a penis that's described as being like a stubby pencil. <laughs> is it? And Hard. the reason that for seems... this, the reason for this is that Peter James once encountered Martin Amos at the Galaxy Book Awards, and Peter James and Martin Amos had been at the same Oxford Crammer together. Mm-hmm. So oh, um, Peter right. James went up to Martin Amos and said, "All right, small penis. Do you remember? <laughs> do, you, do you remember me? Uh, you know, we're both here. I'm about to get an award. You're about to get an award. Do you remember we were at the same Crammer together?" And Martin Amos said, "I don't remember you." And you only remember me because I'm famous. And they walked away. (laughs) (laughs) I find it hard to believe he said that. She's such a nice man. It's too too neat in a way. That's uh, brilliant. That's That's very good. To to just quickly... And the, the second half of the, the novel, what I love is when they, they go to America for a publicity tour for, for Gwyn's new novel. And of course, Richard's going to profile him from a Sunday supplement. So there's all constantly funny scenes where Gwyn's travelling first class and Richard's struck right at the back of economy. He gets summoned up to see Gwyn in his crimson barge. <laughs> it's just great. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> and he's always, he's in a low-rent sort of hotel room and Gwyn's got an entire suite at the, you know, floor at the Excelsior. Yeah, yeah. The humiliation for Richard. Richard's lucky around a hessian sack with 25 copies of his own novel that he's trying to fly it's just humiliation <laughs> yeah. it's just well and this is all building up towards Gwen is in line for this thing called the profundity requital which is basically as a, as a cross I think between the Nobel Prize it involves an enormous cash stipend which the recipient gets every year for life and so Richard's entire goal his mission is to stop oh. Gwen getting the profundity requital so it turns out in each city in America they're visiting <laughs> There's one of the Profundity judges who are known by Gwyn's PR team as Profundity 1, Profundity 2, <laughs> Profundity so well. Um, they're going to be there. So what Richard's... I mean, Richard's plan is complex and devious. He's, he's arranged for reviews of all these people's books to be published in the Little Magazine. <laughs> Favourable reviews. And again, they have no idea how Little the Little Magazine is. Which he then lays on them to show them he's a good bloke and they love him. And he then gains their acquaintance. And he's already found out, for instance, that he's going to be meeting a hugely feminist critic who's one of the judges. So he's basically going to paint Gwyn as to the right of sort of, you know, yeah. Paul Raymond or, you know, an absolute yeah, sex man. So he, he basically is trying to stitch him up with each judge according to the judge's prejudices. So one of the judges he meets in the section where he read is uh, Professor uh, Mills. 
He's a, a professor of ju- a, a professor of uh, jurisprudence who's a uh, hugely learned and famously very liberal man, um, who he gets talking to at a party and he knows he's one of the professors. So. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> it doesn't say. Richard goes through the preliminaries of telling himself not to get carried away. <laughs> <laughs> so they're talking about the notion of capital punishment. Richard said, "It's amazing how hidebound we are in England. Still, the old ideas, deterrence, sequestration. There's a lot of talk, but no one will bring about any change. Even our most liberal public figures say one thing, and." Richard appeared to hesitate, as if considering the etiquette or equity of simply seizing on the nearest example. Well, take Gwen Barry. Thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly liberal in all his pronouncements, but deep down, he surprised me. In his writing, he seems irreproachably liberal in such matters. Gwen, oh, you've no idea the kind of things he'll say in private. He actually favours a return to more public forms of punishment. <laughs> Smells leans backwards. <laughs> Richard went through the formality of telling himself not to get carried away. <laughs> yes, with, with being spectators, retributive and exemplary, but with a vengeance, so to speak. Stocks and pillories, ceremonial scourgings, ducking stools, tarring and feathering, impalements and flayings. You see, Gwen thinks the mob has did a poor deal in recent years. Public stonings, even lynchings. You're an Irishman, Professor. You must have followed the case, the bomb in the shopping centre. <laughs> Here's what Gwen said. He said, round up all known IRA members and shackle them to the gates of the Tower of London with a big sign with pictures saying what they did and inviting the public to go ahead and vent their anger. <laughs> then, after a couple of months of that, with their arms and their legs and their cocks have all been ripped off, do, do excuse me, string them up for the ravens. Oh yes, that's friend Barry for you. <laughs> they, they, they stood side by side, enjoying what Richard felt to be a just and wordless solidarity. However... Earlier that winter, the case was still sub <laughs> Professor Mills had Christmas with his wife at their holiday home in Lake Tackle. Forcing entry on Christmas Eve, a crew of nomad joy readers had then subjected the Millses to a 200-hour ordeal of abuse, battery, bondage and arson. The professor was, of course, aware that a personal experience, however dire, should only carry statistical weight in the settlement of one's intellectual positions. But he was doing a lot of rethinking, which he was going to have to do a lot of anyway, because the many scores of texts he had studied and annotated in preparation for his next book, a lifetime effort provisionally entitled The Lenient Hand had been <laughs> had been mockingly torched by the intruders <laughs> along with the rest of his workstation and it seemed everything else he'd ever cared about <laughs> His wife, Marietta, still in deep therapy, hadn't uttered a word since New Year's Day. Because <laughs> the professor has, of course, turned horrifically right-wing and everything Richard says ends up teeing up, <laughs> giving Gwen the profundity required to speak. But I, I don't know why I find that quite... I was The reason I've chosen all of those, rereading it this summer on holiday in Italy, and I was just sort of six o'clock, you know, cocktails out, and I was floating in the pool reading the book. And uh, Charlotte McGovern, she said, "I feared for you. It was just you, you were laughing so hard. I thought you were going to drown." And it was just—it's the way in the parenthesis of professionally entitled "The Lenient Hand" had been mockingly tossed. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just so—it's just such precision, per, per, though, right? perfectly precision. weighted yeah. comic writing. Yeah. I did—I did make me think, John, that uh, straight white male in particular feels like it might have kind of come out of of, of some sort of relationship with this book. Well, I, I, you know, I go for. Okay. I'd say I'd say pretty everything I write's in the shadow of 
Amos, and you, you, you've, and uh, you know that number. Even the, even that, even that, because there's a great, the great thing that, that Kennedy wins that prize of the the, the, the red brick university, yeah. which is a, kind of has an, an element I'd forgotten about the profundity. Mm. I mean, then, but yeah. I, I, so a lot of street white male protect a lot of the reviews, and as you pointed out earlier, Andy Martin Amos gets such a hard ride. Some of the reviewers of Minor Street White Male took great delight in saying things like, "This is the best novel Martin Amos hasn't written for years," and it made me angry and embarrassed actually because I, you know, like. You, you don't think you never think you're fit to stand in the shadow of your predecessor so you're mad like, you know Ames said that you know Nabokov said um, Joyce's English is um, my English is pat ball to Joyce's champion game and I think every writer, writer feels that but the ones they admire you're not fit to to, to, to re-ink their printer if you will I read this again basically and thought that this book was really underrated but, and including by me I think that I Definitely, came off yeah, the back completely, of it completely but also I was going to make the comparison John that I was trying to think okay so this is like 95 this is this novel comes out in the middle of Britpop doesn't it, right? <laughs> yeah yeah which Britpop album is this and I worked out I just worked it out it's, it's Pulps This Is Hardcore oh right. it's like which is like a record which has also got terrible reviews when it came out it's actually terrific and right and stands up now really really well but it's also like there's something about them both they're both a bit too long they're both kind of decadent quite you know, difficult expensive Mm-hmm. And they're both chronicles of like Fail, failure, failure, and failure, and mm. self-loathing. Yeah. And they're both they're both made by people who've come off big hits, yeah, yeah. About, with things about quote unquote common people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Andy, you're on fire. <laughs> but it's true. No, it's there is that same very kind good. of. And then the same thing happens to Pulp for a while, which happens mm. to Amos, which mm. is that they. They burn too bright. They become synonymous with a particular era, mm. and then people want to kind of move away mm. and, mm-hmm. and distance themselves from that era. What a, that, that's very well thought out commentary there, and I wish I'd put that kind of pre. Okay, uh, I wrote it down. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what about the, the the thing that always comes up with Amos is that we're all it's a table of men. We're all enjoying it. it he doesn't work in the same way for women. I mean, I'm I'm interested in. Matthew had a point about this. What the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> Your girlfriend. Oh, my wife. So my wife loves. My, it, it's literally just my wife loves Martin Amis. I not think your girl, she, not your girlfriend. Not my girlfriend. No. My, <laughs> the anecdotal evidence. My wife also loves Martin Amis. She read Martin Amis, I think, when she was like 15, 16, 17, and I can see her then reading Martin Amis and absolutely loving it because it is for someone who's a kind of you know. Uh, A-level English, um, slightly rebellious teenager, you know, a oh. teenager with uh, intellectual pretensions. She's uh, never going to listen to you're this. You're describing me too, exactly, um, when I discovered... That they would read it, and this, it's something about Martinez where he exists in that bit in between sort of high literature and popular fiction, mm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. He's, he, mm-hmm. And when you're that age, you really, I don't know. I, what, I mean, I remember the... reading London Fields when I was young and thinking, God, this is brilliant, you know. Mm. It's the thing that Richard Toll describes in the book, which is... A cult author with a mass audience. Yeah, yeah. the yeah, thing yeah. that everybody wants. But I also think, though, it really—I mean, it's—it's it's Notting Hill, isn't it? Did it's it? Notting Hill. So yeah. Notting Hill. I remember when I first moved to London. Yeah, yeah. It didn't a sell weird as well. Mixture of people. Is, it didn't. It didn't. Well, it didn't sell as well as they needed to sell. I, I seem to remember that it was. It wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, but it, well, it, it did you, okay. You, it did you'd okay. Love did to it? Sell that quantity of yeah, yeah, yeah. now. But then again, the culture was big. It was. You know. It's also, isn't, it, isn't it the end of Notting Hill? It's like this is Notting Hill before it becomes Richard Curtis. This is right. This is right at the last moment. I moved, I moved to Notting Hill in 1995, the year the novel Did came you? out. 
Uh, I lived there for two years, sort of, when I first started working at London Records. Uh, so I just moved from Glasgow, and my friend owned the house, and I was renting a room. And, uh, you know, it was still, you could go down the Portobello Road and that pub, the Warwick Castle, was still yeah. an awful cesspit. <laughs> um, and it's all gone now. It's long gone. Mm. There isn't a single place like that left. Even, I remember the Errol Percy up Ladbroke Grove for a long time was the last bastion of scum. Yeah. And even that's now sort of pan-fried trout and fucking frosted <laughs> Sauvignon gastropub. So, the, the, uh, funnily enough, my Charlotte owns a flat in, in Hackney and... Over there, it now reminds me incredibly of Notting Hill 20 years ago. There's yeah, still a right. lot of rough estates and proper Sky Sports boozers, yeah. carpeted floor, yeah, England yeah, yeah. flag up, you know, but but surrounded by flat whites and sort of designer, you know, gym yeah, yeah. palaces. And pretty soon, you're not giving another 10 years, that law will be gone too, you know, yeah. as, as will everyone in London be sort of levelled into flat white them. You know, I think Amos is like Welbeck. I yeah. think there is a gender split in how people receive sure. what mm. what those writers do, but I also think... If you find it funny, then you're probably going to mm. let other stuff go and it won't bother you as much, even Absolutely. if it should bother mm. you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and there, there's this brilliant quote from Amos in Experience. How do the humorless raise children? Yeah, How does it get done? done. Yeah. Yeah. How does the stuff get done? Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, and he, but Amos uh, yeah. also, Amos like with style, is saying style is morality. He also says in experience, yeah. this is really central to understanding what he's about. If you don't have that sense of humour, he thinks you're missing an essential intellectual component. Oh, yeah. Right. This is his that, criticism of, I, Corbin, of Jeremy Corbyn, which of course mm. made loads of headlines, was mm. he's got no sense of humour. If he mm. doesn't have a sense of humour, how can you expect him to have empathy? Mm. And if he doesn't have empathy, yeah. how can you expect mm. him to do all these other things? Things you need him to do, mm-hmm. and I think when you when you read Amos, he's so bright and he's so his view of the world is so subtle, so complex, so nuanced. The war against cliche, you know, the whole mm. of his sense of himself as a writer is not mm. being able to be boiled down into uh, into small sound bites. And it is that extraordinary sense of vertigo inducing, mm. yeah. you know, when you're reading an Amos novel. Just very quickly, I'm glad you mentioned the war against cliché. It's a fabulous collection of his criticism, and there's one ace in particular in that, which was his review of Hannibal, the Thomas Harris novel. Which he was a huge fan of Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs. Hannibal, as anyone who's read them all, though, completely loses the plot. But at the time it came out, it was hailed as a contender for the Pulitzer. It was hailed as literature, and so Amos brilliantly takes it apart. And he quotes from, I think, a New York Times review that says, "You know, this is an absolutely sensational novel. It contains not a." single dead or ugly sentence and Amos says it's a genre novel so of course it contains dead and ugly sentences <laughs> unless you feel the breath of life and Tommaso took the lid off the cooler or, <laughs> or Bob Sneed broke the silence <laughs> and so, so as, it, as it would say in the information it's time to stop saying hi and yeah. start <laughs> saying bye oh. <laughs> he's a pro yeah. John that's it for Backlisted this week for another episode. Thanks to John Niven. Thank you very yeah, much for having me, guys. Really, to Matthew. Really and, of course, again, to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Backlisted Pod, on Facebook, at Backlisted Podcast, and on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk forward slash Backlisted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. <laughs> See you next time, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. 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 If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early 
you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Lock Listed, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.